Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Drink. On this podcast, I speak with the people doing interesting things in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today, my guest is Dr. Jana Andronowski. Dr. Andronowski is a forensic anthropologist, and today on the show, we'll talk about how she got into the field. We'll talk a bit about her training and some of the research that she is currently doing and about the anatomy course she teaches at the University of Akron and a few other things as well. Now, here's Dr. Janet Andronowski. Well, you're a forensic anthropologist, so I wanted to kind of go back to the beginning. How did you become interested in forensics and in uh, forensic anthropology in particular? I've always been very interested in human form and function and just how dynamic our bodies are. And what a lot of people don't realize is that bone is a living record. So it's a really dynamic tissue and it's constantly changing over a person's life in response to a lot of different factors like injury or hormones, diet, uh, and also lifestyle factors such as drug or alcohol use or abuse. And being a forensic anthropologist, we're tasked with retrieving a lot of information from bone and sometimes even a tiny little piece. So I've always been drawn to the sort of mystery of it and solving the uh -huh. puzzle. Okay, that makes sense. I, I feel the same way, you know, I'm, I'm a pathologist assistant and I sometimes, you know, you're grossing in a surgical specimen. I feel the same way, sort of solving the, the puzzle. So I, right. I, yeah, I can, I can do that, sure. Okay, so what kind of training is involved then in forensic anthropology? I know you, you yourself have a PhD. Is that required in the field? Right. So my ba background is really multidisciplinary and no two forensic anthropologists will come from the same educational background. I'll say that. So there are many different paths you can take, but pursuing a PhD as a terminal degree is now required for most positions. So typically the trajectory is a bachelor's degree and that can be in different disciplines. I always recommend to my students that they pursue a hard science, so biology or chemistry, math or physics, but many do anthropology. And then either a master's degree or straight to PhD in biological anthropology or anatomy. And that's required to be an academic researcher or to secure a position in a medical examiner's office now. But in the past, it was far more common to practice forensic anthropology with a master's degree as the terminal degree. You know, I'm curious, how did you even discover this field? You know, being in when I was in college and things like that, it I'd, I'd never heard of it. How, how did you discover it? When I was growing up, I was really interested in pursuing medicine. And so I wanted to be a forensic pathologist initially. Mm, okay. And yeah, so I was pre-med all the way through my undergraduate degree. And then in my last semester, I took a human osteology course. So that's the study of bones. And I just became fascinated with that especially learning the fragmentary osteology, because you can have, you know, a fragment of the cranium or the, or the skull that is broken in such a way that you actually have nine different bones present. And so it was extremely challenging and I just fell in love with that. And so I wanted to pursue it, even though it was a risk, honestly, because the field is so small and getting into it can be really difficult. But again, I was drawn to that challenge, you know, solving a case or figuring out who somebody might be just from the skeletal material. Is there a some sort of certification or like a board exam involved in uh, forensic anthropology? There is. It's called the ABFA, and this is the American Board for Forensic Anthropology, and that's the highest level of certification that one can achieve in our field. So to qualify to take this exam, 
you need to have your PhD for at least three years and be invited to write the exam. And you need to have participated in a number of cases. And these case reports have to be reviewed by existing board members. And then there are pretty uh, stringent tests that you have to take at the Academy of Forensic Sciences annual meeting. So a written exam, as well as a hands-on exam, where you'll be assessing age or sex from, in your case, unknown remains. And so that's sort of the highest level of certification. There's just over 100 individuals who are currently certified. Okay. So they have actual bones there that you have to examine? and <laughs> Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. It's very difficult. Yes. I was, I was reading about on your website, part of your training, you worked at the, uh, the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner for part of your training. Um, and then later on, you worked at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. C- can you tell me about a little bit about those experiences? Um, I know probably a lot of people have heard about, you know, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, the, the body farm. And of course, the uh, New York City OCME was featured in the book, Working Stiff by Dr. Judy Melanick and TJ Mitchell. And they actually had, I think there was a chapter in there about the forensic anthropology department. Can you tell me a little bit about your experiences there? Yes. Yeah, so I was a researcher at the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner during my graduate training. And I worked primarily with the forensic anthropology unit and I worked under a forensic bone histologist. So I'll be talking more about bone histology in a forensic context when we talk about my research, but mm-hmm. basically it's a very small subset of us who do this type of research and apply it to forensic anthropological casework. So working with him was amazing. He really taught me everything that I know from how to procure bone for histological analysis, how to prepare the slides for evaluation, and ultimately to estimate the age at death from the bone microstructure. and. So in addition to working with him, I also learned, you know, firsthand that crime scenes and the subsequent skeletal analyses can be really complex, especially if you have multiple individuals present or when the bones are recovered fragmented. So I did do some work with them, you know, at the scene, recovering remains from an outdoor environment, and then applying the different methods we use to obtain what's called a biological profile of that unknown person. So approximately how old they were when they died, their biological sex, how tall they were or stature, any trauma or disease processes to the bone. So that was sort of my role there. And in terms of the University of Tennessee, so we we have an official name for the quote-unquote body farm. It's called the Anthropology Research Facility or the ARF. And that is the oldest and most well-established of the body donation facilities in the U.S. So it's been around since the early 80s. And it's a really unique place because it allows for hands-on training in the recovery of human skeletal material from various contexts. So, for example, from an outdoor environment, either on the surface, you know, in a burial, uh, or other mock crime scene situations, like how to recover remains if they're in the trunk of a car, for example. and Working there was amazing because they have world-renowned experts in forensic taphonomy, which means basically everything that happens to a body from the time it's deposited to the time it's recovered. So that can be, you know, weathering. It can be any damage to the bones, like somebody steps on them, right, when they're out in the field. Mm -hmm. And I learned a great deal from these experts and continue to because we collaborate on, on research now. What kind of projects specifically were you involved with there at the at the body farm? 
Right. So I worked with undergraduates to teach them how to properly recover human skeletal remains according to archaeological methods. So we teach them how to map, you know, the mock scene, how to document the bones that they're finding and any other evidence. And so this is really a fantastic training opportunity for them, because typically if you're taking a short course, for example, like I did during my training, we would be working with plastic skeletons, right? But this is the real thing. And so it really offers a unique aspect to that. We also worked with the pre-donors, so people who contacted us to donate their body following their death. So working through the documentation for that, uh, as well as I worked on specific research projects as well. So for my dissertation, I was looking at which bones might be optimal for recovering to retrieve nuclear DNA for human identification and trying to figure out if we can use histological indicators, so details of the bone microstructure, to determine which bones might have higher and better quality nuclear DNA. Okay, and are those results kind of applicable to the forensic uh, investigation then? Yes. So if you have a skeletonized individual, you need to sample bone for DNA analysis because there will be limited soft tissue uh, if it you know, makes it to the, to the forensic anthropologist unit. And a lot of folks typically will sample you know, the femur or the tibia, something that has really dense cortical bone. And right. that's done across the board. But there hasn't been a lot of empirical research looking into which bones might yield higher uh, in greater quantities of, of nuclear DNA. So yeah, so it's applicable in, in that sense. Okay. You mentioned establishing a biological profile. Can we kind of go a little bit deeper into that? How, how, do, you, how do you do that? And what I know there's like four aspects of, of that. Can we, can we explain that? Yes. So the biological profile is a really important role that we have. And what that means is we assess, as you mentioned, sort of four big aspects of an unknown individual. So the estimated age at death, And when I say estimated, this means that we'll always provide an age range. We'll never say that somebody was exactly 25 years of age because we don't know that, right? So we want to keep that age category a little bit open so the law enforcement isn't looking for someone that's exactly 25, but say 25 to 35. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the second aspect is biological sex. So this is if someone's male or female. And this is really important to distinguish from gender, which is socially determined, right? So even though I'm biologically female, I might identify as male, but my skeleton will reflect the biological sex of female. The third aspect is ancestry or population affinity. And I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but this is the most controversial and difficult component of the profile. And we're moving away from doing this assessment. So I'll come back to that when we talk about sort of the future of forensic anthropology. Okay. And stature or living height is our last sort of big aspect of that. So how tall the person was. And again, we provide a range. We'll never say someone's only five foot one, but provide a range of height, five foot one to five foot six, for example. And in addition to those, we also look to see if there's any trauma to the bone. So is there evidence of blunt force injury, say from a blunt object like a baseball bat or a hammer? Was the person shot? Is there a gunshot wound? What about sharp force injuries from a sharp object like a knife? And in addition to that, we might also look for disease processes. So for example, if there's any evidence of osteoarthritis or other bone infections, things like this, this can all help us to provide a better picture of who that individual was during life. 
Yeah, I was reading a little bit about how do you uh, estimate living height from the bones, and there's some pretty elaborate formulas for that. A lot of a lot of math involved there. Sure. Yeah, the best bone to get a, a more accurate sort of stature assessment is to use the femur if you have it intact. So there are many formulae that have been developed on other bones, but the femur is going to be your your best one. Okay, that ma- that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Let's let's move on then and talk about some of your research because there's quite a bit of it. Much of your research work involves uh, two dimensional and three dimensional imaging of bone, and you use an instrument called the synchrotron. I think I'm saying that right. The synchrotron, yes. Synchrotron. Okay. Can you tell me what is that and what does it do? Of course. I'll start a little bit about, or sorry, I'll start with talking a little bit about my research first and then talk about how the synchrotron sort of fits into that and how that works generally. Okay. So as I mentioned, my work involves using histology to study the microstructure of bone, but I also use high resolution imaging. So this includes desktop microcomputer tomography and synchrotron radiation-based microcomputer tomography. So I know that's a long, <laughs> a long word there, but we'll come back to it. Okay. And <laughs> I use these methods to study cortical bone turnover or remodeling. And I can do this through imaging the cortical porosity. So when I say porosity, these are the pores that represent spaces where vasculature and nerves travel through the bone. And we also see resorptive areas associated with this bone turnover process that can be exaggerated with age. And so studying these structures It can help us to better understand age-related changes to bone, different disease processes, as well as just general bone adaptation. I mentioned it's always changing in response to different stressors. So typically, in forensic anthropology, we use two-dimensional techniques to provide us with age estimates. However, we know that our bone exists in three dimensions, and it remodels or changes over time, which also introduces a fourth dimension. And so if we just study the bone using 2D, 2D techniques, this can provide an inherently limited window into how bone is actually working. And so with recent advancements in imaging technology, such as synchrotron micro CT, this is enabling sort of a shift from the two-dimensional to the three-dimensional analysis of bone at a really high level. I use what's called a synchrotron, and I'll explain a bit about what that is. So it's a specialized form of circular particle accelerator and it uses a source of brilliant light or breaking radiation that's actually created within the facility. And these facilities produce this light by using radio frequency waves and powerful electromagnets to accelerate electrons close to the speed of light. And there's different spectra of light that it produces. So for example, infrared or ultraviolet and x-rays. So that's the methodology I focus on. And these x-rays then are directed down beam lines to sort of a control room where the researchers can choose the wavelength to study their samples. So in addition to studying bone, people study all sorts of different materials. There's different types of beam lines. I use a biomedical one specifically, but it's really offered this new avenue for studying bone architecture and bone quality and other microstructural features. Okay. So let me see if I understand this. So it's, it measures how the beam reflects off the bone, off the surface of the bone. Is that yeah, you can think of it sort of a, a really high resolution X-ray. So you can okay. see really, really small, like nanoscale structures. Um, so say you're getting an X-ray at, at your physician's office, you're going to be able to obviously see your bone, make out what's, you know, 
cortical bone versus the spongy bone, but you're not going to be able to see those pores that run through the bone or the areas where cells live. And so with these really high resolution methods, we can get at that kind of information, but you can't obviously apply them to living individuals because the radiation dose is so high. So we just use extracted pieces of bone for our studies for the most part. Okay. And I imagine there aren't a lot of these synchrotrons around. There are not. So in North America, there are only four and Canada only has one. So I primarily utilize the Canadian light source. So that's in Saskatchewan, Canada, where it's very cold and very far right. north. Um, and there's one in Chicago too that I've used for my research at Argonne National Lab. But oh, sure. yeah, yeah, in the whole world, there's only about 24 that are currently working. Oh, wow. Okay. How did you get involved in, in using an instrument like this? In anthropology, the kind of research that I do is pretty specific. It's pretty rare. And so I really had to collaborate with others who are involved in you know, physics, or anatomy departments to gain access to this type of, of facility. And basically, I just wasn't able to answer the questions that I wanted to with the resolution that I was able to achieve in the laboratory, right? We can use microscopes for a lot of great studies, a lot of great questions, but we're not getting that full 3D picture of the bone, right? So we need to turn to these, these methods that we can input you know, a larger piece of bone and it non-destructively images it at very high resolution. Is the synchrotron imaging, is that in any way similar to like electron microscopy or is that a completely different thing? Yes, it's different. <laughs> yeah, synchrotron, I can link you to a couple of photos for your listeners um, to go oh, along yeah. with this. It really is, is, is a giant facility the size of, you know, multiple football fields. And so having the storage ring that carries the electrons where they circle around right close to the speed of light, it, it's a large scale operation. Yeah, so it's you're really traveling to this facility to perform your experiments. You can't do this in your own research lab. Right. Okay. I imagine you have to like schedule time in advance and things like that. Yeah. Apply for time and it's awarded on a peer review process, sort of like being awarded a grant. So you oh. apply for it, you're evaluated by a team of scientists from different synchrotron facilities. And if you score highly enough, you're awarded time. To pay for time is increasingly expensive. It's thousands and thousands of dollars. Like $20,000 for eight hours, for example. So wow. you don't really do it unless you get through the peer review process. Okay, I see. Uh, another area of your research, you do some work with uh, osteon banding. Can you explain what that is and what you're doing in that area? Sure. So this was another synchrotron related project that I completed a few years ago with some collaborators at the University of Saskatchewan. So I mentioned previously that differentiating human from non-human bone is another one of our rules. And often we have to do this using histological methods. If the bone is fragmented, we can't see the gross features that we can use to observe that, you know, sort of with the naked eye. So osteons are bones structural units. So they are products of that bone turnover process. And we have different types of them. I won't get into that, <laughs> but basically, they can be arranged in linearly oriented bands, and these are referred to as osteon bands. And in the forensic anthropological literature, these have been indicated as commonly seen in non-human bone, particularly if there's the occurrence of multiple bands in a single specimen. And conventionally, this was documented using microscopy, so 2D methods. But as I mentioned, this can provide an incomplete picture into bone microstructure since it's dynamic and it remodels in 3D and over time. So what we were doing 
was working to visualize and document the occurrence of osteon banding in human bone using high-resolution synchrotron micro-CT. And so typically, other examinations hadn't focused on, say, a variety of bones. It was, you know, the femur or the rib. But me and my team looked at bones from all throughout the human skeleton. So flat bones from the skull, long bones from the limbs, and then the small bones of the hands and feet. And we found that the presence of multiple bands in a single specimen was not uncommon, and so that it shouldn't be used to be diagnostic of non-human bone, especially in the absence of other features. Why is it normally like the femur and, and I think you mentioned the ribs that were normally used for this, just because they're the most available or was, were there other reasons? In forensic anthropology, for the age estimation methods we apply on the histological level, these are commonly used for the rib or the femur. And this was due to the availability of such specimens when the methods were developed. So the rib, for example, the sixth rib was a site of biopsy. And so it was a more, you know, cosmetically acceptable area to sample and more available. And so just so our data is comparable with other methods, we still extract these same, these same bones for our analysis. Oh, I see. I see. So you can compare your results to, to previous. That makes sense. Okay. Right. Of course. Then you're also working with uh, the effect of opioids on, well, and their effect on bones. Can you talk a little bit about, about that area? Yes. So I'll start by mentioning that this project is supported by the National Institute of Justice. And so the opinions, findings, and conclusions expressed here are my own and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice. Okay. So that being said... You being in the forensic pathology field or the pathology field, you're aware of the prescription of opioid pain relievers, how they've skyrocketed exponentially yes. since the 1990s, right? Mm -hmm. And you've seen a significant increase in the availability and use of synthetic opioids, especially since the early 2010s. And a lot of folks, unfortunately, who are prescribed opioids will abuse them, like 20 to 30 percent. And about three to four percent of those will turn to illicit opioids as a cheaper alternative. And so this has become an epidemic. And where I live in Ohio, we are a state that's especially hard hit by overdose deaths. Okay. And in the clinical literature, so as it relates to bone, we are increasingly recognizing the role of opioid use on how bone deteriorates and how fragile it can become. And our opioid use has an effect on the bone cells that build bone. So these are called osteoblasts. And so we're seeing more bone destruction than bone formation. And this in turn is increasing bone fragility, even in younger people. So we're basically seeing osteoporotic-like effects that can increase the risk of bone fracture. And so we need further research to understand what's going on, right, on, on bone metabolism as a result of, of these drugs. So the project I'm looking at is seeking to describe the effects of chronic opioid use on bone microstructure using high-resolution methods. So we use a combination of synchrotron micro-CT, as I mentioned, two-dimensional histology, uh, and also desktop micro-CT, which is a bit lower resolution and can be done in the lab if you have a desktop micro-CT system. And we just talked about the skeletal sites that we commonly use in anthropology to look at bone microstructure. So that's the femur and that's the mid-shaft rib. So these are the bones I'm, I'm also looking at for this study. I, I imagine these the opioid effects on the bones then if you have a like a forensic scene where the individual had had used opioids previously, would that obscure like how you determine a 
biological profile? Would that make things look differently? Right. So this is what I'm currently working on. So unfortunately, there's not a lot of data, at least histologically, that's retrieved from people who are, you know, not sort of typically healthy. And they're from a specific type of population, more commonly, say, European individuals who are older, right? But in our casework, we often see individuals who unfortunately have, you know, drug history or other sort of situations that can uh, result in them being marginalized, right? And so our histological methods, for example, are not developed on individuals who have any sort of bone condition that affects how the, the bone remodeling process works. And so what I'm looking to do is refine our methods for age estimation based on what I'm seeing in my opioid research. So how we can improve these methods to be applicable to people who have this sort of bone dysregulation going on. Okay. And also like the nutrition factor that affects the bones as well. So I would think that the people in the same sort of category would have that aspect also affecting their bones, which would further obscure, you know, determining a biological profile. Is that, is that accurate? Right. So the issue with humans is that we're so multifactorial, right? So if say I'm using drugs regularly, I might also have a poor diet. I might mm -hmm. have a these process from using drugs intravenously. And so it's really difficult to isolate, say, just, you know, the drug issue. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say that it sounds like you really need a full patient history uh, before you start analyzing the bones in order to come up with an accurate profile. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Another thing I wanted to talk about is the Andronowski Skeletal Collection for Histological Research. Now, how did this collection come about? And I, what, what is it? And, and, and then how is it used? So the Andronowski Skeletal Collection for Histological Research, so I call this ASHER, so that's sort of our acronym. I initiated this in 2017 to provide a resource for the study of skeletal microstructural variability, so with advancing age or between the sexes. So it sort of started out as one project, and then I developed these relationships with medical schools and an organ procurement nonprofit in Ohio. And the collection has since grown exponentially since that time. So I've mentioned that we commonly use the rib and the femur for our analysis. So the bone procurement for this collection focuses on those areas primarily, but I also have skeletal elements that include cranial bones or other lower and upper limb bones. Um, and it's grown to over 400 individuals. Oh, so wow. we, yeah, so we have donors as young as 19 and as old as 105, and that's roughly half males, half females. Our collection is currently housed in the biology department at the University of Akron, and it's open for use by other anthropological researchers and other biomedical researchers. And so I hope that people will contact me and they'll use this collection for either histology research or imaging research. Have you had people use it already? I've had a few. So the largest skeletal collection of, of this type that's available, it's in Melbourne, Australia, and they have bones from about 600 individuals. So I, my goal is to grow the collection to be as large as that or exceed that and be on this continent so it's easier for researchers in North America to access. And I do want to note that all of our bones were collected from medical schools 
or Oregon nonprofit organizations with the full consent of the donor or the donor's family. Okay, that's important. Yes, that our donors, we can't continue with this research. So I always want to thank them for their selfless gifts to science. Yes, of course. Uh, you mentioned the University of Akron, uh, where you're a you're an assistant professor. Is that correct? Yes, okay. in biology. Right. Okay. And I and I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about you teach a biology class. Uh, you teach anatomy, and you use uh, human cadavers in the class, or at least you did, you know, before the, yes. the pandemic. So, how did you come up with that idea? Because that's that seems unusual. At the it's an undergraduate class, right? It is. Mm-hmm. And that, that seems unusual to have actual cadavers. So as I, I've been talking about, you know, my background in forensic anthropology, but I'm also a trained anatomist and a biologist. And so for either budding forensic anthropologists or students who are going into pre-med, having a really solid foundation in gross anatomy is really important. And I think that exposing students in their undergraduate careers to cadaver dissection, or at least prosections where we dissect the cadavers and you know, they study them, this can really set them up for success in medical school. And so when I started my position here, I really pushed to redesign the course to incorporate human cadavers. So the undergraduate students can appreciate, you know, the three-dimensional relationships between the tissues. You really can't get this from a textbook or from a model, right? Right. And I also teach the course regionally, so not by systems. So say, If we're teaching the thorax, we'll go through all the vasculature, all the bones, all the muscles, all the nerves in that region. And that's how they'll learn it in medical schools as well. And the laboratories really provide them with the best opportunity to have practical experience with the anatomy. So by handling the cadaver tissues, as well as, you know, using models and diagrams. uh, And we do incorporate some virtual resources as well, even before the pandemic, but, (laughs) you know, shifting online has been a challenge for gross anatomy since it's a very hands-on course. Yeah. And when you brought this idea to, I guess, to administration or whatever about using human cadavers, what was the reaction to that? So I think they were worried I wouldn't be able to pull it off <laughs> because it, it did require you know, some renovations to an existing lab space. It required acquiring refrigeration equipment, right, to house the cadavers in a respectful manner, make sure that they don't you know, rot or mold or any of these issues. And there also, you know, is the issue of cost, right? They're incredibly expensive to procure for the the course. Um, And so we started out really small scale, you know, one or two cadavers, one of each sex, and I dissected them on my own. And that program really grew to involve a number of my graduate students as they came on board, my undergraduate students to help with the dissections. And the course just exploded in popularity a lot of the pre-med students and then people from even other disciplines like biomedical engineering and anthropology heard about the course and, and wanted to take it. So we've had a really great three years and it's been really rewarding to see the class, the class grow in, in this way. Okay. I, I was going to ask you what was the reaction from the students, but it sounds like they, they've loved it. Yeah. So for the students, you know, I, I honestly, I hear from them around this time of the year when they're starting medical school and they say, Dr. A, I'm so appreciative of your class. It really taught me how to study because my course is difficult. I try to teach it as close to a medical anatomy course or graduate level anatomy course as I can. And I tell the students, you know, I'm not trying to torture you, but I'm trying to get you in this practice of studying every day, early and often is the key to success in anatomy because there's so much information. Right. Yeah, that's definitely true. As you know. Yeah. Yes. Yes. 
so in, we mentioned the, the pandemic now with things going online. Uh, have you have you have you had to teach this class now online completely? Right. So in March, we had to do a really quick shift to online. So the second half of my spring course was online. Uh -huh. And then for the fall, we're preparing for a mostly online semester. And as I mentioned, this has been challenging because we really want to give the students this experience of the hands-on cadaver lab and to work with the cadaveric materials if, if possible. Um, so we've been incorporating a lot of virtual resources for them, like virtual dissectors where they can quote unquote, dissect away tissues with the click of a mouse that represents a virtual scalpel. And we also have photographs of our cadavers. We were able to get permission from the university who supplies them to take photographs and provide sort of online cadaver presentations like they would be seeing in the lab. Okay. We've also done activities such as patient of the day where we have teams of students and we give them mock cases with clinical symptoms and imaging results to kind of come up with a diagnosis as a team. So we're doing our best to keep it interactive. And at least for right now, we're planning to have a hybrid model for the lab. So the students will come in two times per unit to actually hold the lungs, hold the heart, ask questions from a distance, right, of their instructors. So that, that's sort of our, our plan. But it is it is definitely a challenge in this in this climate. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I found, though, at least from an education standpoint, there's been a lot of creativity of, of, you know, how to go forward with this, with a virtual environment. I don't want to say there's something good come out of a pandemic, but I, I think that is a good thing. There's different, uh, different ways of, of learning. Yes, that's definitely true. And there's so many platforms for anatomy because you study anatomy in dental school and med school and as a physician's assistant, and as a nurse. So there's so many different avenues for, for it. But it's also challenging because a lot of these resources that we use, they require, you know, a very fast internet connection mm -hmm. um, that not everybody has access to, especially if you're sharing, you know, an internet connection with your whole family. So there's definitely challenges. We're trying to be as accommodating as possible and offering as many different platforms that can be accessible to all students. You know, the, the forensic anthropology field in, in recent years, it, it's really grown and it's it's seen an increase in popularity, uh, I guess, in part from some TV shows, which we know are not entirely accurate. But I'm curious, in, in the time you've been in the field, how has it changed and how do you think it's going to change in the future? The field has certainly gained more popularity since the onslaught of crime dramas like CSI and Bones like you alluded to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I was going through school, you couldn't go to your guidance counselor and say, I want to be a forensic anthropologist. There just wasn't resources. So now there are a lot of different programs, a lot of different courses that you can take. And the availability at the undergraduate level, for example, is, is vast. But that being said, the number of professional positions available for forensic anthropologists remains limited. So many of us do work in university settings or museums, medical examiner's offices, so there is versatility in where you can find work, but I always recommend to students that they study biology or a hard science and become a scientist first, because if you just pursue straight forensic science, it's not as versatile, right? You can work in many different kinds of labs as a biologist. Mm -hmm. And then if you decide you don't want to pursue your PhD, you still have you know that science background you can fall back on and maybe pursue a different avenue of of forensic science, like forensic biology, for example, or forensic toxicology. So in terms of how the field will change in the future, 
I mentioned that a lot of our methods that we use in forensic anthropology focus on a gross or macroscopic assessment of the bones. So, you know, we look at the pelvis for sex estimation and we measure long bones and so on. But this sort of gross approach can be really qualitative and, and subjective. And so we're moving towards employing quantitative methods for assessment of the different aspects of the biological profile. So that's really the way of the future. And I also want to mention that when we discussed the biological profile, I said the third component, ancestry, is really complex. And many forensic anthropologists now argue that the use of these gross cranial traits to estimate ancestry should no longer be used as part of the biological profile. And this is because we don't have a lot of comprehensive research into why these traits exist. And the fact that their use could also hinder our identification efforts, right? If we do an incorrect assessment, because obviously there is a lot of different backgrounds, you know, we identify in different ways. I might look European, but identify as Hispanic, right? So mm, sure. to that end, it's really our ethical obligation to ensure that our reported biological profile does not in any way hinder the identification process. So we really need to move away from employing problematic methods in our casework. And we're now having these conversations to improve the modernization of forensic anthropology as a discipline. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, with things like the research you're doing, there's going to be a, a shift in uh, methods in the future of forensic anthropology. Yeah, method development has always been very, very high priority for forensic anthropologists. So how can we improve the different methods that we use for different aspects of the biological profile? So this is really important. Um, so yeah, the work I'm doing is trying to modernize our histological methods. But again, there are so many morphoscopic methods that are still being used that, you know, vary in their degree of accuracy and precision. And so we're always trying to, to work on this aspect. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you mentioned if someone wants to get into the field, they should, they should major in hard science. Is there, are there ways to like volunteer or uh, intern or something like that in order to kind of get your feet, feet into the field? Yes, Absolutely. So for example, as an undergraduate, if you're at the University of Tennessee, you can volunteer to help to curate the skeletal remains from the anthropology research facility or, or the body farm. So we have a team of undergraduates, over 70 of them, who help to clean the bones as they come from the field and are curated into the collection that's then used for research. Okay. So if you're somewhere like that, there's really unique opportunities. But if you're at a university and somebody specializes in biological anthropology or for forensic anthropology, for example, like me, you can contact that professor and ask if, you know, they need assistance in their lab with any research or, you know, in my case, I have a team of undergrads who help to curate my collection as well as do research. And so I think it's really important to get involved early, to not be shy and to reach out to people and talk to them, right? We all are, for the most part, most people I know are very willing to talk to students, right? We have, we're involved in a lot of different outreach. So for example, during the pandemic, I've been involved in Skype a Scientist, and I've talked with school groups of various ages, you know, students as young as seventh grade, and they just have such, such great questions for me uh, about the field or about medicine. And so I think reaching out is really, really important. And as you sort of grow in your academic career, you can find internships at medical examiner's offices. So I started as an intern at NYCOCME. And 
then that turned into sort of a, a long-term research project because I was able to secure grant funding and return there. So if I didn't start as an intern, I never would have had that experience. Gotcha. Okay. You're involved in a, there's a student group that you're involved with also. I, I, for, I forget the name of it. Yeah. It's called the Biological Anthropology and Human Anatomy right. Student Organ- Organization. And that's at the University of Akron. So my students call it Baja for short. <laughs> and okay. so through that, I actually have over 60 students currently, or at least prior to the pandemic. And we do a lot of public outreach at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, for example. They have a large skeletal, skeletal collection there called the Hammond Todd Skeletal Collection. And so we're able to use that to teach the public about forensic anthropology and the methods that we use. So we do that usually twice a year, hopefully again right. in the future. And, you know, we bring in speakers. We had a forensic anthropologist from NYC OCME last fall who came and spoke to us and was in the anatomy lab with us. And basically, we just are involved in a lot of opportunities to sort of teach people about forensic anthropology and also to provide resources for students who think they might be interested in going into that field or a related field. And also that group has a very cool uh, logo. Which... Yeah, so I want to give a shout out to my brother, John Andronowski, who's a graphic designer who designed that logo for us. <laughs> okay, yeah, he did a great job. I love it. Yes, it's great. In the show notes for this episode, I'll put links uh, to that group, to uh, uh, all of the other things we talked about. Uh, this has been very interesting. Um, I, admittedly, I don't know a lot about forensic anthropology, but I feel like I learned quite a bit today. Dr. Andronowski, thank you. Thank you very much for being here. Great. Thank you very much, Dennis, for the invitation. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Great. Big thank you to Dr. Andronowski. Now, if you want to learn more about the things we talked about today, go to the website and check out the links in the show notes. There are quite a few of them for this episode. So that's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at peopleofpath. And of course, make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Podbean. And if you know someone who might be interested in this episode, please share it with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. By the way, I did an episode of PathCast recently. You might remember the creators of PathCast from a few episodes ago, Dr. Madrigal and Dr. Manan. And because of that interview, they invited me to do an introduction to grossing lecture. There's a link to that on the website as well. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.